0: Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 6, page uh, 530. In the mornings, I'm taking you through the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be doing that next, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. And in the evenings, uh, as I've wanted to do for many years, going through the Psalms, not every Psalm, but certainly um, trying to touch on a number of them, and we come uh, this evening to Psalm number 6, again, page 530 of your Pew Bible. It's probably safe to assume that all of us here tonight have memorized the Lord's Prayer, or at the least, we can paraphrase uh, it without much trouble. Once we begin the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, we can usually get through the rest on instinct, if nothing else. Now, as Pastor Trefskar reminded us recently, uh, the Lord's Prayer should probably be titled the Disciples' Prayer because it's a prayer taught by Jesus to his disciples, to us, as a guide to prayer. Jesus doesn't actually use the Lord's Prayer himself because he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness, and that's a key part of the Lord's Prayer. However, it is an amazing guide, and many things Jesus does does pray throughout his life are reflected in the Lord's Prayer. But the Bible has more to say about prayer than just the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gave that as a wonderfully simple guide to prayer, but when we examine Jesus' own prayer life, it's very clear that he wasn't just reciting the same prayer over and over we find a rich diversity in his prayer life, depending on the situation he's in. For example, right now we're studying as a congregation, John 17, what is called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ. In that prayer, Jesus speaks to his Father on the eve, or really just hours before his crucifixion. A little later that night, Jesus will pray quite differently, if you think about it, When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayers kind of change. He will ask that the cup might pass from him as he sheds tears. Throughout this wonderful diversity, this wonderful window into Jesus' prayer life, we can pick out a source. Jesus regularly prayed the Psalms, relying on them in the key moments of his life, such as his temptation and crucifixion. Probably the greatest example of this, the highlight of this, comes on the cross in his worst moment when he cried out with the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think about that for a moment. Jesus is fully God, the second person of the Trinity. He could use any language he wanted, any words he wanted He could make up a better prayer just on the spot. But instead, he consciously, intentionally borrows from the language of the psalms. But it's not just on the cross. Jesus' prayer life often follows the themes and language and ideas, concepts that flow from the psalms. Jesus knew how to tap into the rich prayers of the psalms and apply them in his own day To every circumstance he found himself in. So while the Lord's Prayer uh, does offer us a very good, inspired guide to prayer, as we grow as Christians, as you grow as a Christian, we need and we should develop a greater depth of prayer resources, especially from the Psalms. I begin this way tonight because this psalm, Psalm 6, addresses a situation. It speaks to a reality that is somewhat unique. Whereas the Lord's prayer is general and can be used every day, even every moment, this prayer, like so many of the Psalms, targets a particular experience in the life of the believer. It reflects something that happened to David and something that can happen to us. I hope tonight to add this to your prayer life, As Christians, we should not confine ourselves to simply repeating the Lord's Prayer or a few other standardized prayers. The Lord's Prayer is wonderful, it's priceless, but Jesus himself did not do that. Rather, like Christ, we should dive into the Psalms and the many rich prayers of Scripture so that we are thoroughly armed with language for every occasion. So let's look together with that heading, that understanding, at Psalm 6, and may it deepen your and mine prayer arsenal, the diversity of the prayers that we make, even on a daily basis. So please stand and we'll sing uh, sorry, say, read this uh, wonderful psalm together. It's really meant to be sung, of course, and prayed, but I'll read it to you uh, this evening. This is Psalm six: "O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath." Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, or the grave, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief, it grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's inerrant word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do thank you for the Psalms and the wonderful way in which they can enrich our prayer life as well as our our life of worship, teaching us and tutoring us on how we ought to pray, how we ought to sing your praises. We pray this evening as we look at Psalm 6, That you would apply it to our hearts, that you would write it upon our hearts, and that we would learn to use this psalm in a way that glorifies you, helps us, and ultimately brings glory to the name of your Son. And Father, we ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're using the Pew Bible, and even if you're not using the Pew Bible, just your personal Bible, my guess is that Psalm 6 is already sort of broken down for you into three sections. There's probably little paragraphs there for you that show you that verses 1 through 3 kind of go together, that verses then 4 through 7 go together, and that 8 through 10 go together. So we don't have three points tonight because I want to have three points. We have uh, three sections to look at because this psalm, this prayer unfolds in three sections as the way the Lord has Developed it. So first of all, see with me in verses 1 through 3, uh, a plea for mercy, a plea for mercy in judgment that comes from David. Look at those verses again. He begins by saying, "Oh Yahweh, and, and literally in Hebrew it's, it reads this way, O Yahweh, not in your anger rebuke me, not in your wrath discipline me. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am drying up, I'm shriveling up. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are in distress and my soul is in great distress, greatly troubled. But you all, O Yahweh, how long? This is a psalm of David, as you can see from the introduction. And it probably comes from a time in his life when his son Absalom is staging a national coup. You might remember that moment. Absalom had overthrown David's government. He had viciously assaulted David's wives in public. And now he was out to kill his father. This is really the only time in David's life that fits this particular psalm. And so we're pretty confident that that's the moment this comes about. But on top of that, most theologians and and students of Hebrew in the Bible notice that Psalms 3 and through 5 go together and deal with the time of Absalom's rebellion. And so it's very, very likely, almost, I'd say, certain that Psalm 6 is written during that period, those dark, dark days in David's life. But what is he saying here? David begins the psalm by admitting that he is under judgment from God. Again, in Hebrew, he literally says, Yahweh, not in anger judge me, not in wrath discipline me. In other words, I know you're going to do this. I know I deserve this, but don't do it this way. Unlike other psalms where David describes himself as the innocent victim, in this psalm, David clearly understands that he is being chastened by God. In other words, we have a lot of Psalms, maybe most of them, where David is saying, I'm innocent and people are out to get me. God, please help me, vindicate my cause, save me from my wicked enemies. In David's early life, he was often the victim of men like Saul, who persecuted him unjustly, And when that happens to us today, and it does happen to us sometimes as Christians, we can go to those same Psalms and use them for comfort and use them to lift our voice up to God. However, here, notice that David is not saying that. In Psalm 6 and also in Psalm 38, David is not talking about persecution, the persecution of an innocent man. It's not Saul who is after him. He is not the victim in this psalm. Rather, he says, it is God who is after me. I'm under severe discipline. And so he asks, not that God would remove all discipline, but that God would not do so in wrath. As you might recall from last week, when David sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, his life changed Yes, he was forgiven by God. Yes, he continued to be king because God's promises cannot fail or be undone. God had promised him an everlasting kingdom, so he could not be punished in that way. However, if you go back and you read 2 Samuel, you'll see that his life and his reign from that point on are difficult. Now, in Absalom, his own son, David is being forced forced to see his own sins reborn. Absalom is a man, his son now, Absalom, a man using women, killing opponents, and conspiring for power. Those are the very things that David himself had done in his sin. As parents, and, and those of you who are parents, I know will give your amen to this. As parents, one of the most frightening things for us to deal with is this fear maybe the biggest fear for some of us, that our sins will appear in the lives of our children. And that is happening to David in this psalm. But that is part of God's chastening of him, the discipline that David is dealing with. He's on the run for his life, and he cannot call himself innocent anymore. So instead, he writes Psalm 6. He says, I'm guilty. But please don't judge me in wrath. Please don't discipline me in wrath. Remember mercy in judgment. In verse 2, David asks that God would be gracious and heal him. He describes the pain as absolutely overwhelming. In verse 2, he says that it's down in his bones. And even more powerfully, in verse 3, he says, My soul is troubled That language might sound familiar to you because Jesus used that exact same language himself. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Although he was sinless, Jesus did fall under the wrath of God for our sake. The picture here then, whether it's Jesus or David, is terrible distress, shock, and horror. David is not under the normal discipline that we all experience from God. Rather, he is under some great judgment that has become unbearable, threatening his life. The weight of this judgment leads David to conclude his plea with a simple cry that you see in verse 3. Lord, how much longer? Lord, how much longer? One writer says, all God's delays are maturings, all God's delays are maturings, either of the time, as in Psalm 37, or as here, the man. David is writing in a time of discipline, a time of maturing. Without claiming innocence, he is asking God to hold back because the, dis- the discipline threatens to swallow him whole. Now we started this evening by saying that Jesus has given us the greatest guide to prayer we could ever want, what we call the Lord's Prayer. However, I want to make the point again that Jesus' own prayer life borrowed heavily from the Psalms. The Lord's Prayer gives you the model, the Psalms give you the details. So here is a situation you may find yourself in, a situation where you are guilty. You know that what is happening to you is your fault, but you want to ask God to mitigate the discipline, to remember mercy in judgment. I don't know if you've been in that situation yet, but I would imagine all of us will be at one time or another, or we will be praying for someone who is in that situation. Maybe not as dramatically as David, but you'll want this. You'll need this. You should pray this psalm, either for yourself or for others. Also, and I think this is very helpful, the opening plea, these first three verses, is a reminder and warning to believers that sin can be totally forgiven in Christ and yet still bring loving but difficult discipline. I mentioned last week that some Christians struggle with the story of David People have asked me, several people over the years, how could David continue as a psalm writer and as the king of God's people after conspiring to murder his lover's husband? On the surface, it seems like David just gets away with it. It may even appear that because David is spiritually important and politically powerful, that God just more or less turns a blind eye. We might be tempted to ask, is David too big to fail? This psalm, though, and other passages like it, are a powerful response to that kind of thinking. Yes, God is a God of abounding grace and mercy. Whatever you've done, whatever I've done, we should come to him and he will forgive. However, don't be naive or try to make a mockery out of God. Understand that just because he is a loving father, there will probably be consequences in your life. In fact, if you look, the consequences are already there. He's already disciplining you more than likely. So please don't think that David just got away with it because he had power or because he was close to God. He was absolutely forgiven, but he was also disciplined and almost to the point of collapse. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. A man about to collapse under the weight of discipline. It's not that God has not forgiven him. This is not damnation. But there there is here a real painful life-changing consequence. Consequences which were designed to drive him to God, to drive him to this very moment. And that's exactly what the discipline has done. It has gotten his attention It has made him feel his sin, and it has driven him to God for help. And Psalm 6 is the wonderful prayer that comes out of that. So first you see in 1 through 3, a man under God's discipline, but at the point of breaking and crying out to God to remember mercy and judgment. It's a plea. But then in verses 4 through 7, the psalm sort of changes, doesn't it? Um, David does something else that is... Very, very helpful for us as Christians to note. David goes from his plea to making arguments, to making arguments, not nasty arguments, but to to plead his case, if it will, if you will. And he makes a big biblical argument to God. You see it especially very clearly, I think, in verses four and five. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life save me for or because of the sake of your steadfast love. Because in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? At first, when we do this, or we hear someone else doing it, it can sound strange or rather pointless. After all, God already knows all the reasons. He knows every word before it's on our tongue. However, God is glorified by these arguments and we profit from them as well. When we're deep in prayer with God on a particular topic, it is a good time to answer the question, why? Why do I want this? Why am I praying about this? Why should I ask God to do this? And so for for no other reason, forming a humble argument to go with our plea is great for us. But more importantly, and you can see this in the psalm, praying like this is a reminder that our own righteousness is never the argument. Notice what David doesn't say. David doesn't say to God, God, I did this for you. I did that for you. And and if you spare me, I'll do these things too. I've been so good up till now. No, David's argument glorifies God because David makes it about God. If I fail, says David, God's covenant love, his steadfast love, will be brought into question. The word here in the Psalms translated steadfast love is the word usually meaning simply covenant faithfulness. In other words, do you see what David's doing? He's not appealing to anything in himself, but rather he appeals to God's promises. If David is destroyed by his enemies... God's covenant promises have failed. God has a promise to establish David and his throne forever and his seed. So David is on firm footing when he makes this argument. The argument does not disrespect God. It actually glorifies God because it's rooted in God. He is claiming the covenant promises that God has given him. The same is true for his second argument, which comes in verse Five, if David dies, he will no longer be able to praise God publicly. No doubt David is thinking of those times when he led all Israel up to the temple to praise God. I know this is really hard for you to imagine, so just kind of try tonight. But imagine how powerful it would be if our king, our president, our governor was actually involved in leading us in worship. That's what David did. So if David is struck down, the voice of praise that he has been offering will fall silent. A quick note here, some critical scholars and thinkers will read verse 5, and they'll say, aha, see, David didn't believe in an afterlife. But that's not what David is saying here. The word remembered here in Hebrew means to praise or to worship. So David is not saying, if I die, I won't remember God. I won't have thoughts. I'll just be worm food. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying my voice, the voice of praise on earth, my leading of the congregation in worship, that voice will go silent. And I don't want that to happen. Again, notice that the argument is rooted in God and his glory. David isn't just asking to ask. He has reasons, godly reasons. One final reason or holy argument is made in verses 6 and 7. Here David powerfully pictures himself in intense sorrow. His bed has become a pool of tears, he says. We could say today he's cried himself dry. He, He can't cry anymore over this situation. And now, he says, verse 7, my eye grows weak because of all my foes. Now, remember this. This is so important. Remember Psalm 2. Psalm 2. David's enemies are also God's enemies. The surrounding nations and some traitors within the nation of Israel, like his son Absalom, have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart. David is a king surrounded by other nations, far larger and more powerful. These nations laugh at David and at his God. And so David's argument here is really powerful, isn't it? If God does not bring an end to this discipline, his promises will fail, his praise will diminish, And his enemies will win. Now those are three powerful arguments worth making, worth singing, worth praying. Tonight I want to encourage you to make biblical arguments in prayer when appropriate. I'm not saying uh, that this is something that you have to have in every prayer, but I do think it's a valuable skill that we need to learn we need to take the time to think out why. Why should God do this, what we're asking? What's at stake? If we do that, if we do that, if we think about these arguments, there are some prayers we may just lay aside, many that we just won't say, and many, many more that will be greatly strengthened. Holy, holy argumentation is fully biblical It glorifies God, and it helps us to get to grips with what we are really praying for and why we're praying for it. One uh, commentator in the Old Testament that I enjoy a lot is Dale Ralph Davis, and he makes this comment when he's commenting, preaching on Psalm 6. He says, I don't want to reduce prayer to an exercise in logic and arguments, but I would guess that too few believers give much thought to the use of arguments in prayer. No one can fail to see how highly emotional Psalm 6 is, and yet, with the place it gives to argument in prayer, it is highly rational as well. Pushing ourselves to bring reasons for our requests may help us see how shoddy some of our petitions are, or it may encourage us if we seem to muster a cogent case, argument in prayer shows that we are called to thinking in worship. So we've seen a plea. We've seen how David then musters these holy arguments. What's at stake in his request? And then in the last stanza, verses 8, 9, and 10, which you have there in your Bible, he suddenly turns to confess his confidence that God will hear him. So David is in the middle of this incredibly emotional prayer. He's just talked about his bed becoming a a pool of tears. He believes himself to be near to death. His internal grief, his soul grief, if you will, is so severe that he's genuinely concerned that he won't be able to come back from this. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I've been a few times just for a short time. But he's at the point where the internal strain of God's discipline, the weight of his sin, is such that he's not sure he can survive it. And then suddenly, suddenly, verse 8, he has all the confidence in the world. Look at those verses again, beginning in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Suddenly, David is certain that God has heard him and that his enemies will be suddenly destroyed, that the fear and shame he feels right now will suddenly be dropped upon them. Sounds great. But let me ask you, how did that happen? How did he go from being almost hysterical in verses 1 through 7 to completely at ease in verse 8? One answer out there is that David had a sudden vision or an angel told him that he had been heard. But the Bible never records anything like that. And this psalm is all one complete prayer. There's no pause for that to happen. There's no long pause between verses 7 and 8 for some kind of vision to happen. So what happened? Here's what happened. As David prayed Psalm 6, he made his holy arguments, and in the midst of that, he received his answer. He's praying, you see, and saying, God, if this doesn't change, I will die Your promises will fail and my enemies will win. And by the time he's done saying that, he realizes, Oh, right, that can't happen. Do you see? His own holy arguments have brought him comfort. God cannot lie. His steadfast love is forever. God has promised David an eternal kingdom, and this is the key. Because David's prayer is rooted in certainties about God, he knows that he is heard. The most important question we should be asking when we are done reading this psalm is this. Why did this prayer work? Why would the God of the universe, who is infinitely powerful, Spotlessly holy, why would such a transcendent, awesome being listen to the plea, the arguments, and the worship of a person like David, let alone me or you? The answer to that question is breathtaking, but unfortunately, you may have heard it too many times, and so you may not be properly stunned by it. Ask God to reawaken you even in this hour and me as well to the joy of our salvation because here is the answer. Our arguments work before the throne of God because Jesus Christ, God's only Son, makes and takes our pleas into the Father's presence. David and you and me, we have the greatest lawyer imaginable. And all our sighs and pleas and arguments and praise are all taken to the very heart of God the Father by God the Son, our Savior. And you know what? When our lawyer spreads his hands to make his argument for us, when the wounds are visible, when the courtroom gasps at the sight of those wounds, when the lamb slain is suddenly in the midst of the throne room, there is no argument, there is no plea that can go unheard. So we can make our arguments to God through promises, through Christ, just like David. In fact, if anything, we can have more boldness living on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is why this prayer is here in your Bible. The prayer was put here in a hymnal to be used by all the people of God. David understood that though his situation was unique, he was a king, he understood, though, that the basic outline of this prayer was for all people, for all believers, for the whole church. You may be thinking tonight, my prayers are so weak, so short, so little, you may, some of you said this to me, you say, Pastor, I don't have your gift or Pastor Trefskar's gift for public prayer. I'm so overwhelmed at this moment, I can't pray. I'm so hurt, I can barely speak. Or maybe you're just saying to yourself, I'm just too sinful to pray like this. I'm in such trouble that I, I can't make an argument. I can't even get out a plea. Let me say to you, it's okay. Just cry out. Just read one of the Psalms aloud. If that's all you can do, just go ahead and borrow God's word. Use Psalm 6. Or in some cases, you can even just groan because your lawyer, your lawyer is that good. In fact, he's so good that you can say with complete confidence the words of verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that our arguments have power in the courtroom of heaven, not because we are the ones making them, but because our arguments are based on promises, and our promises are given to us and fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do trust ourselves, again, entirely to him, and look to him as our advocate and our mediator and as our high priest. Strengthen us now in that hope. Help us to go out this week with confidence that our prayers are heard for his sake. When we are under discipline, especially, Father, in those times when the effects of sin are upon us and maybe even especially the effects of our own sin are are damaging us and bringing destruction to our lives and hearts, especially in those moments, Father. Remind us that you hear our prayers and our arguments and our pleas for the sake of your Son. We do give to you, then, all glory and praise and honor for such a glorious Savior. Cause us to love him more this week. We pray it all in his name, amen.